Spidey gets married and Snake Eyes and Scarlet get blown up real good. I'm Tom Panneries and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I do, okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. I have three comics for you this time around, G.I. Joe number 63, Marvel Age number 54, and the Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21, which is one of the most famous comics of 1987 by far, even if I think its place in fandom is debatable, at least as far as I can tell. But I'll be getting that to that after my first segment, which is where I will be covering the next part of the Joes in Captivity storyline. G.I. Joe number 63 is our comic for the first part of this episode, and this had a cover date of September of 1987. It came out on June 9th with a price of a dollar. The cover is by Mike Zeck, and it shows Snake Eyes and Scarlet walking through a minefield. And since it's Snake Eyes, I know that I definitely was hyped about seeing this issue on the stands because Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow were my favorite two G.I. Joe characters at the time. Our story is called Going Under. Our credits are as follows. Larry Hama, script, Ron Wagner, penciler, Andy Mashinsky, inks, Bob Sharon, coloring, but Joe Rosen lettering, Bob Harris, editor, and Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. We open on Grenada, the now peaceful island that was once the setting for an invasion by United States forces in 1983 and was also the setting for the climax of the Clint Eastwood movie Heartbreak Ridge. Snake Eyes, Scarlet, Flint, and Lady J are taking some much-needed R&R, although Snake Eyes is preoccupied with Stalker's imprisonment in Barovia. In the Barovian Gulag, we are introduced to Corporal Olga, She-Wolf of the SS, or whatever the Barovian equivalent of the SS is. She barks at the prisoners, reminding them that they are responsible for one another, meaning not, not only will they be beaten if they fall out of line or are too lazy, but other prisoners in the section will be beaten as well and the beatings will continue till morale improves. Stalker is put on a truck to go do some work in the mountains, where prisoners are moving huge logs up a mountainside. The guard taunts him, saying that he holds a record as a sniper, and if Stalker should try to run, he'd definitely kill him. Quick Kick and Snow Job are thrown into a prison block and are sat with Boris, a quiet, emaciated prisoner who is sewing a stuffed bear. Snowjob wonders why Boris was sitting alone and thinks that perhaps Boris has a habit of informing on his fellow prisoners. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, Jinx has Billy in the language lab at the Presidio, learning various foreign languages, while Raptor spies on them from a distance. As Billy gets bored listening to the Rosetta Stone tapes, he recites back some words and hears, Very good, please hold on to your seat. 
The floor gives way, and he discovers that he is on a one-person elevator that takes him to a secret room where Hawk, Chuckles, and Law and & Order are there to talk about his future. In downtown San Francisco, Raptor is at a payphone in full bird costume, and people are staring at him. Which is odd, considering that he's in San Francisco. But he's calling Fred, and Fred isn't answering because the ex-Crimson Guardsman is driving away with the pogo and saying that it's time to take action. In Utah, Roadblock organizes a game of touch football, and then we cut to Dr. Mindbender and Serpentor looking at the satellite intelligence photos taking of the base, wondering why there are so many Joes there, way more than can actually fit comfortably in those barracks. They also note that there are tread marks and tire tracks that seem to go nowhere. Then a Techno-Viper shows up to tell Serpentor that there is a building in the Presidio where people go into, but never come out of. In Grenada, R&R and R Joes walk near the airport and Flint and Lady J and Snake Eyes and Scarlet part ways with Snake Eyes and Scarlet and an old African-American blind man walking through a field. Moments later, Flint realizes that he recognized the field from Articles in Time and Newsweek from the invasion a few years ago, and then remembers that that field is mined. A mine explodes and Lady J rushes to help her friends, but Flint stops her, saying they don't know how many mines are out there. It appears that Scarlet and Snake Eyes are dead. In San Francisco, Billy finishes telling Hawk about his father, but says he won't tell him anything against him. Hawk says he won't ask, but wants him to tell his story one last time, to Storm Shadow, who is in the next room, a rec room, and wearing a patented Huey Lewis blazer over a black t-shirt. He's there with Ripcord and sits down in a chair to tell him what he knows what ha- that he knows what happened to the Softmaster and Candy, and that they both died on a highway outside of Springfield. In Barovia, Stalker returns from logging duty and is fed gruel. He sits down with the other two Joes and says that he's done some looking around and sees where there could be escape possibilities. Boris, the prisoner from earlier, rats them out, and the guards take Snowjob off to be beaten. We then cut to Grenada in San Francisco, where Flint is on the phone with Hawk and tells him about the explosion that apparently killed Scarlet and Snake Eyes, although the investigation suggests that something is fishy. The explosion doesn't seem to match the blast pattern that's expected, and no bodies were found. Storm Shadow gets on the phone. He describes the blind guy to Flint, and those of us who've been paying attention since the beginning of the storyline know that that's the Blind Master, and this suggests that our two Joes definitely faked their deaths, perhaps as a way to go undercover to rescue the Joes in Barovia. Our issue closes two days later in Galveston, Texas, where Fred pulls up to a wharf and charters a boat to Cobra Island. Wow, there's a lot to unpack in this issue. First, you've got a main story of Snake Eyes and Scarlet's apparent deaths, which ties into the ongoing plot of Stalker, Quick Kick, and Snowjob in the Gulag. Then you've got Billy and Jinx, which will also wind up tying into that storyline, especially with the appearance of Storm Shadow. And then you've got this whole Joe-Cobra conflict with Cobra running intelligence on the Joes, and Fred obviously making his move to introduce himself as Cobra Commander. And all of that in a... 22-page comic that reads as well as anything that Larry Hama has written for this series up to this point. He's got to juggle quite a bit to move both move things along and make this entertaining for an audience that, for a large part, is buying comics because of the toys they own. Back in 1987, I bought this right when it came out, and I loved it because of the Snake Eyes cover. 
But it wasn't until rereading it for our episode here that I realized how much continuity is in this one comic book. So back in 1987, I did know of the connection between State Snake Eyes and Stalker because I had a second printing copy of both G.I. Joe and 26 and 27, which was the Snake Eyes, the origin storyline. I had bought those for about $1.50 or so each at a time when the first printings of those were going for probably about, I want to say like 5 or 10 bucks. And it's not a ton of money for a back issue these days, but I was nine years old at the time and I didn't have a steady income. So $10 for one comic as opposed to $1.50 or $1.75, yeah, I'll buy the second printing. And by the way, I covered these two comics in issue in episode 54 of In Country, which is my podcast about the NOM, which you can also find on the TTF network. Anyway, what I didn't know about was the connection between Billy and Storm Shadow and what that has to do with the Softmaster and Candy. By the time I stopped reading G.I. Joe a few months after this issue came out, I knew who both the Softmaster and Candy were because I owned most of a complete run of the series, starting with issue number 46 and ending with issue number 66. The Softmaster was one of those ninja masters of the clan that taught both Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow, and Candy was Ripcord's old girlfriend. But I didn't know that back in issue 43 of the comic, they were both killed in a car accident outside of Springfield. Furthermore, I didn't know that Billy was a former student of Storm Shadows and that he was in the accident with Candy and the Softmaster, and that's how he lost his eye and his leg. I've skimmed that particular issue because I have it in trade and will at some point do a read of the entire Marvel series once I collect the remaining trade paperbacks. But I at least wanted to point that out because that's 20 issues of continuity that I didn't know about. And yet, 20 issues of continuity that I didn't need to know about in order to understand what was going on in the story. And one of the cooler things about that scene with Billy and Storm Shadow is how Hawk brings in Chuckles and Law and Order, who were part of a fill-in issue, and who were characters that were basically deep cover types. So this is all about how Hawk realizes the team has to skirt the rules, the same way that Snake Eyes is skirting the rules in order to retrieve his friends. The Gulag scenes are pretty well done. I like how there's a prison rat who immediately gets them in trouble. Ron Wagner draws Olga to look like Brigitte Nielsen in Rocky IV, which I can't imagine is an accident. And the situation just continues to be dire. Again, we could have had this be a muscled-up action movie, but Hama has decided to be very realistic and very patient with his story. There's no way that Stalker, Snowjob, and Quick Kick are simply walking out of this. And that's a great setup for the rescue mission later on. The Fred Raptor stuff? Well, that's just a couple of pages that will be more important next issue, as is the Cobra Intelligence stuff. I like how Hama uses those cutscenes, although Ron Wagner's Techno Viper ah, looks really odd. I mean, it looks like the figure, but the purple figure, which I had loved back in the day, does not translate well to the comics page. But hey, you can't win them all. Otherwise, the art's a good return to form. Wagner has been a solid G.I. Joe artist for a number of issues, and it's good to see him back, especially since this issue calls for less battle and action and more dramatic tension. And I have to say that the conversation between Storm Shadow and Flint, which is done with floating heads, is actually very Kurt Swan-like, which has nothing to do with the story, but I just thought I'd point that out. Anyway, that's it for... Issue number 63 of G.I. Joe. I'm going to take a break and I'll be back with the wedding of the year. Yeah. 
Xenozoic Xenophiles. A fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. So I have two more comics left to cover, but I'm actually going to be doing them both in the same segment because they're connected to one another. The first one I'm going to cover is Marvel Age number 54, and the second will be The Amazing Spider-Man Annual 21, which most comic fans will know as the issue where Peter Parker marries Mary Jane Watson. Marvel Age number 54 has a cover by John Romita of Peter and Mary Jane at the altar about to kiss and surrounded by their best friends and supporting cast with the image of Spidey looming in the background and promises the exclusive on the wedding of the year and bonus Mary Jane Watson paper dolls. That's really why I bought this issue. No, not the paper dolls, but the coverage of the wedding. I had heard about Spider-Man's wedding through various ads in comic books and in the comic book store, and since Marvel Age was only 50 cents, and therefore within my price range, I picked it up and would wind up buying the book for the next few months as well. Again, 50 cents and a look at what's coming out from Marvel, you can't beat it. Now, I'm going to come out and say that it's kind of hard to summarize an issue of Marvel Age because it's basically a magazine And I don't know if I can really give it much of a review because it's a coming attractions magazine. So I'll hit the highlights and I'll go to the main event, which is the Spider-Man annual. After the coming attractions in the Newswatch section, there's a mutant report, which is teasing the upcoming fall of the mutant storyline. And then we get to the cover story, which is the wedding of the year. Written by Sholly Fish, it takes a look at the issue itself and then goes into a little bit of the history of Peter Parker's various relationships. It also has an insult inset about a not brand ack story where Spidey Man marries the Wisp. Then there's a Fred Hembeck cartoon that puts Spidey the Hulk and Johnny Storm in the newlywed game scenario. There's Stan's soapbox, a trivia quiz, and a focus on Mary Jane's Watson's dress, which was designed by Willie Smith, who had also designed the suits for the groomsmen at Caroline Kennedy's wedding. The two-page article features Smith's original dress design and a paper doll cutout, where you can dress Mary Jane in the dress. What it doesn't note, by the way, is that by this time, Smith had actually passed away due to complications from AIDS. Although I think I remember reading about that at some point, but it might have been in actually the mainstream press. This is followed by a preview of the upcoming Marvel Saga Annual, which will take a look back at Peter and MJ's relationship, as well as a, quote, deleted scene of Spider-Man's bachelor party. And then we get a Marvel History segment about 1975 before the issue's regular letter column. It's a fun thing to read because it's a great snapshot of Marvel at that time in 1987. And I will say that the little cartoons are fun as there's the calendar on the inside back cover that tells you the various birthdays of the Marvel staff. And honestly, this is what I remember about Marvel compared to DC when I was reading comics as a kid. Marvel always seemed to never take itself very seriously, or at least there was a general silliness about them. Anyway, I'm going to scan a few of these articles and pages, as well as the back cover, which is a Peter and Mary Jane in Love painted picture, but I think it's by Bill Sienkiewicz. So you can find those in the show notes, and I hope you enjoy them, because this was pretty fun to read. But let's move on to the main event. Let's move on to um, the Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21, because it was clearly the event of the month and maybe even the summer at Marvel. 
I don't know much beyond what happens in this issue, so I'm going to stick with covering it, but I will say that there was an actual wedding ceremony held at Shea Stadium on June 5th, 1987, where two actors playing the lovebirds tied the knot. The Amazing Spider-Man annual has a cover price of $1.25, and it had two covers. The first, which I believe was the direct sales cover, showed Peter Parker and Mary Jane facing the audience with their family and friends behind them, and a heart-shaped Spider-Man logo behind them as well. The newsstand cover, which is the one that I had, and I'm pretty sure that I bought this cover on purpose because I wanted the cool-looking superhero cover, has Spider-Man and Mary Jane as the happy couple, the same heart-shaped Spider-Man symbol, but instead of family and friends behind them, there are heroes and villains about to charge at each other on fight and fight. On the left, you have Electra, the Kingpin, Dr. Octopus, and the Lizard, and on the right, you have Captain America, Wolverine, Daredevil, and the Human Torch. The title of the story is The Wedding, and the creative team for this is Jim Shooter, Plot and Editor-in-Chief, David Michelini, Script, Paul Ryan, Pencils, Vince Coletta, Inks, Rick Parker, Lettering, Bob Sharon, Colors, and Jim Salakrip was the book's editor. Sirens scream in the summer heat, echoing down crack brick alleys and tumbling between buildings that grasp and hold the sound like an old, familiar friend. For this is New York City, a town that's seen it all. Spider-Man, who it should be noted, is wearing his black costume, although on the cover he's actually wearing his classic red and blue costume, arrives on the scene and sees that Electro and his gang are robbing a fine clothing store. Spidey drops in, takes out the gang members, and then fights Electro in the street, finally taking him out by throwing a manhole cover at a fire hydrant and shorting out his systems. Spidey then heads to his apartment where he changes back into Peter Parker and develops the pictures he took. Mary Jane arrives, having been away, and they make arrangements to meet with Aunt A and Aunt Anna. Mary Jane leaves and gets into a limo, and Peter thinks about how his life and hers are so much different. At the Daily Bugle, the staff throws Peter a good luck party with J. Jonah Jameson, actually giving his photographer a bonus check. Peter then heads over to Mary Jane's for dinner, and he gives her the wedding band he picked up on the way home. Then she gets a call from Willie, her dress designer. Peter feels insecure some more as she heads to Willie's studio to see the dress, complete with cameo from Willie Smith himself. And after that appointment, a man approaches her, hands her a cassette tape, and tells her to get into a nearby Ferrari. Because that's not sketchy. Mary Jane listens to the tape, which is from an old flame named Bruce, and heads to Queen's where she and Peter tell Aunt May and Aunt Anna that they're getting married. Peter reflects on how he became Spider-Man, as well as the death of Gwen Stacy. They leave. Peter heads to his apartment, where he literally walks up the walls while thinking while the mysterious Bruce picks up MJ. Later, she shows up at his apartment and she asks him what he does to clear his head, and he shows her, suiting up and swinging them around the city. But for the rest of the night, he can't sleep and he stares at Gwen's picture. Then when the next day arrives, he's not 100% sure about all of this. He and Mary Jane get their wedding license taken care of, and Peter heads to the hospital to visit Flash Thompson. Peter's having second thoughts and seeing a Polaroid of the dress over lunch with Mary Jane doesn't help. The following night at the, are the bachelor-bachelorette parties. Peter's is low-key while MJ's is a bash. Then Peter has a dream where all the dead people in his life are attending his wedding and his villains tie up all of his friends and are going to grab Mary Jane. Across town, Bruce drives MJ home and yet again offers to take her away. The day of the wedding arrives. 
Mary Jane is at City Hall in her dress, but Peter is nowhere to be seen. He then shows up late but ready, and they exchange vows. At the reception, Mary Jane reveals to Peter that they've been hooked up nicely with a honeymoon in France, probably courtesy of Bruce. And we fast forward to an epilogue two weeks later, where the couple is returning from their honeymoon and are ready to live happily ever after. You know, I was not exactly sure how to cover this issue, because I know that Spider-Man's marriage has been a bone of contention over the years among the characters' more hardcore fans. I'm a fan of Spider-Man, but I've only read a few things here and there. The essential trade paperback that contained the night when Stacy died, the complete alien costume saga, Craven's Last Hunt, which I will be covering on this show, and a few bits and pieces of things from the 90s and the 2000s. So, I figured what I would do is just read this the same way I read it in 1987, which was knowing that Spider-Man was getting married, but not having read any Spider-Man comic that I ever remembered. So, essentially, I'm coming in cold. It's... It's an alright issue. Okay, I'm going to get my usual criticism of Vince Coletta's inking out of the way first, because, man, there's just so much of that is just taken away from what are pretty good pencils by Paul Ryan. The action against Electro at the beginning is solid, but that's the only action in the book, so that means that in order to get the story completely across, the art really needs to be great, and for the most part, it's it's serviceable. Now, the story... I'll try to go in a little more in-depth. Most of the issue centers around Peter having second thoughts and second-guessing his decision to marry her, perhaps feeling like he's rushing into things. There are a few things here and there that are obviously flashbacks and explanations of things for those people who don't normally read Spider-Man. There's a whole point where Peter has been developing his pictures, and Mary Jane asks him how he gets such good pictures, and he explains the tech behind the camera and how it's tied to like his utility belt or whatever and and how he's like perfected the system it's just something we don't really need to know because it's not pertinent to the plot but it's one of those okay like new reader where does he get these toys like i need to explain this uh there's a flashback when he's at aunt may slipping through a photo album to his actual origin again not particularly pertinent to the plot uh, there's a flashback, like a one-panel flashback to the night when Stacy died, which is actually pertinent to the plot. So we get a lot of background and exposure, which is clearly, I think, Shooter and maybe Michelini writing for the extended audience that's going to pick this up. Because this is one of those things that made national local national news, so they were bound to sell quite a number of copies of this. Uh, as opposed to, say, just a random issue of the series. Further, furthermore, um, Peter seems to be wondering, like one of the major conflicts of this issue is the fact that Peter seems to be wondering if Mary Jane actually wants the life that he's been leading, because she doesn't. She seems to be used to being high fashion model. She jets sets everywhere. He's just a regular guy, and they've known each other for a very long time. So has she outgrown him, I guess, is one of his things. I mean, he's Spider-Man, but he's still a regular guy. He's still Peter Parker, you know, and that's who she's marrying. Um, which is different, I guess, on some level than Clark Kent and, and Lois Lane. Uh, Clark and Lois would be married, I think, exactly ten years later. 
I want to say it was 97 when they got married. It was either 96 or 97. And, um, yeah, Clark is Superman, and Lois, Lois was a little freaked out by that when he revealed that to her. But at the same time, Clark and Lois in their personal and professional lives are their colleagues, and that's how they met. So she... So this isn't like, you know, I, we were friends when we were younger, like kids in high school and college, and all of a sudden, um, you know, your life has gone in one direction and my life has gone in mine. Clark and Lois came from those different directions and hit this kind of common starting point, and we're, we're going along the same way. But they also met as adults, too, so there's there's a major difference between those two. With With Spidey, it's it actually makes for some pretty good tension throughout the book. I do like the fact that he's rethinking a lot of things. He's getting jitters and they try to portray it in a way that is realistic. I don't have, or have not really read any of the issues leading up to this or any of the engagement stuff. So I don't know if they feel like they're rushing into it or if this has been going on for a long time or what. And we get to see, Peter thing about past loves. There's a there's a panel with Betty Brandt at one point, but Gwen, Gwen's the focus of some of its doubts. Now in 1987, I didn't know who Gwen Stacy was. I didn't know this was important. And, and again, in, at 10 years old, I didn't understand the whole thing about you know teenage love and dating. And I just wanted to see Spider Man fight and get married. Uh, looking back at this now, I like that this comes up, especially since. Gwen really was the love of his life and then was killed, and that's going to resonate in a way that's profound compared to, say, me getting married in 2003 and really not thinking about the girl I dated before I started dating my wife. So, you know, I mean, there's a whole different set of circumstances there. And he blames himself for her death. In fact, he's like talking to her picture at one point. I mean, here's a guy who's still kind of broken up about this. And it's... And I guess it's hard for him to express it completely, too, because of the fact that Gwen was Mary Jane's friend as well. And, you know, like, how do you broach that topic? So he's kind of brooding and and stuff. And to be fair, Mary Jane has her own doubts, and that's what I, I do kind of like about this issue, especially she's being pursued by an ex-boyfriend named Bruce. And I really want to say that that's Bruce Wayne. I mean, it can't be a coincidence. He has black hair. When we finally see him, he doesn't. We don't see his entire face. It's in shadow. I mean, and and it would be honestly Bruce Wayne would date a girl like Mary Jane Watson the playboy Bruce Wayne would date a girl like Mary Jane Watson so I want to say that shooter and Michelini having a little fun maybe Michelini having a little fun and positing the idea that Mary Jane Watson might have actually run off with Batman instead of Spider-Man and there are, but there were times when I felt that this story was slightly rushed I didn't like I said I don't have much context as far as how the engagement went. Um, I probably should have read the Marvel Age stuff a little closely. I want to say that this was rushed in a way, and it shows because I didn't understand why Peter and MJ were just telling Aunt May and Aunt Anna like 
like right before they got married. I mean, you would have told them when you got engaged and stuff because it was nearly the eve of the wedding. But I guess that helps figure into this idea that they're wondering if they've rushed into this. I mean, they're getting married on the steps of City Hall. She's got a great dress because she's Mary Jane Watson, supermodel, knowing designers. But other than that, there are a couple of 20-something kids who, you know, they're they're not going to have a lavish wedding. So I guess that kind of works in a way. I mean, honestly, I never thought that such an event issue would live up to the hype that it gets. I also never felt that it would feel as disposable as it does. I'm going to go back to the Superman wedding. I've bought that. I bought that when it came out. Yet, I've been reading Superman for years. And Clark and Lois, that, that seems so integral to the Superman story that this was an actual milestone and it would affect the characters. With Spider-Man, I don't... I've heard over the years from people on podcasts that they never really fully knew what to do with the marriage. And I don't know how true that is, if that's one of those let's boil something down into one sentence type of things. But if that's the case, then I can see why they wouldn't, because this does feel like... It's a one-and-done story, and I know it has effect on the continuity, but it's almost like you could have somebody erase this, and it would it might not change a lot of things. Maybe they do that. I don't know. But back to the wedding thing. I've read other wedding issues, and granted, my benchmark for like my gold standard wedding issue is Tales of the Teen Titans number 50, the wedding of Terry Long and Donna Troy. Yeah, and I know Terry, ugh, Terry Long, but but at the same time, it is a story that is written by Marv Wolfman and drawn by George Perez, and it nothing nothing action happens. It's the entire thing is the wedding. It's all civilian Titans stuff, and it's done in a way that's intriguing and excellent, and and is like a really good wedding season finale television episode, and. Um, that to me is what you do. That's what you do when you have like a wedding issue like this, where you have the civilian marriage and people don't know who the, uh, who the superhero identities are. This falls short of that. And it seems to say that we won't really remember what happened in this issue. Other than the fact that they got married and maybe we'll have a copy somewhere because everybody bought this comic. And that's not a knock to David Michelinie. It actually is probably more of a knock to Jim Shooter. Because I don't think Michelinie would want to tell a disposable story. But I think that Shooter probably gave him a pretty thin plot to work with. Probably had a few mandates as far as things that had to happen in the issue. And then he did his best to fill out the entire annual. And to be fair, he does a good job. He does a good job at having these two contemplate what's going to be happening while they get closer and closer to their inevitable future. But overall, I think this is worth reading for its historical significance. But there's better wedding issues out there, and there are definitely better annuals out there. But since I do have a copy, a paper copy... Don't worry, I'm not ruining the comic. This is the copy of the comic I've had since 1987, and it's got a cracked spine. One of the pages, the cover is dog-eared. It's, it's, 
it's not it's not going to sell on eBay, so I can I can do that. I could also do this. Oh, the smell of an old comic. All right, here we go. Same uh, chocolate fun for everyone. M and M's ad this time. The M and M's are swimming in chocolate and getting candy coated. That peanut M and M is naked. Huh. All right. The Robotech role-playing game. I have a feeling we're going to hit some of the same ads in here. Robotech role-playing game ad we saw earlier. Pages are not numbered in this thing, and that was driving me crazy when I was trying to write my synopsis. There are actually very few ads. Oh, we got a two-page spreader at the staple of for TSR of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. One, how to deal with pandemonium and more than 35 other planes. And in order to show pandemonium, the regular ad copy is upside down, so you have to flip this over for Advanced D&D. And then there's Bring the Third Reich to its knees in time for the 10 o'clock news. The Onslaught role-playing uh, game, or the Onslaught spi lightning simulation game that you could execute in only four hours and it's a world war ii rpg uh looks pretty interesting to be honest with you like did vince coletta just take an eraser to these pencils i swear there's some very good panels in here and if paul ryan had a better inker maybe like a like a paul neary or somebody or Mark Farmer, or somebody who had been doing inking at Marvel for maybe Andy Mashinsky, or Tom Palmer, or somebody you know who had been doing Marvel inks for a long time. Aside from Vinnie Coletta, this the artwork would have been a lot more memorable. This is very, very just sort of like I said, disposable in a way. There's a Mile High Comics ad, the classic big yellow one-page ad. It actually goes uh, a page and a half. And then on the bottom below the half page of it, there is um, alternate realities distributing out of Denver, Colorado, which looks like it was, ah, this looks like it was associated with Mile High because the address is the same. So that's very interesting. I didn't know Mile High was in the distribution business, but it makes sense. I mean, it's been it's been Diamond has been doing it for so long. We forget that back in the '80s, the comics had dis- different distributors. Wow, not a lot of ads in this annual. That's really interesting. There is the here comes the fudge. Here comes the fudge. Introducing Stripe Chips Ahoy. I had these. These were tasty back in the day, and it's this thing where if you cut up. 12 panels of a Chips Ahoy cooking being striped, you will ruin your comic, but you could also create a flip book. Uh, and uh, so, betcha by the stripe. Uh huh. And on the back, this is actually my favorite ad of the entire comic, is the back cover. It is a picture of Dr. Doom's gloved hand holding a letter, and he's kind of crushing it like angrily. And it's on Fantastic Four Stationery, which has a logo. It's the four logo at the top, and it says, Dear Vic, guess who's in charge now? It's clobbering time! Love, Ben. The Thing, the Human Torch, Crystal, and Ms. Marvel. And uh, it says, The New Fantastic Four by Steve Englehart, John Buscema, and Joe Sinnott. And paper clipped to the letter is a picture of the Thing uh, of the Four charging at the camera. I have read like no FF in my time, maybe an issue or two. Uh, so my my experience with the Fantastic Four is 
very, very, very minimal. And maybe I'll get into it at one point. So I, I would, I'm curious. I don't know if Andy or, or Stephen Lisi listened to this, this show. And if you do, Andy, um, I know you're not up to this point on the fantastic cast. I'm pretty sure you guys are still in the seventies, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts on this particular run are. This, this to me, just at a glance reeks of like the, the period like I have with the Titans where it was like that post zero hour era of where the team was, was Roy Harper and then as Arsenal. And then it was a Mirage and Terra from the team Titans, Supergirl, the matrix, Supergirl damage Donna Troy as a dark star, uh, the Kyle Rayner, green lantern minion, uh, and, and kind of a, kind of a corrupted changeling for like a couple of issues and uh, a, a team that had potential. And I liked back in 1995, but upon a reread a few years ago, realized that those issues just did not gel. The team did not gel. The issues were not particularly good. It was really the kind of the nadir of the Titans of that era. And there was no question as to why the book was being canceled. So, and it's, it, it does kind of re it also kind of reads like a television show that like they retool in it's like last season and, uh, add like a, like jazz up the credits and it just, it never seems kind of seems off the entire season and then eventually gets canceled. Although the fantastic four wouldn't be canceled for a number of years after this, but yeah, I was just kind of curious as to what fans reactions to this are. But other than that, that's about it. Um, I will be back on June 16th with two with the other of the uh, Hasbro mainstays that are part of this podcast. And I'll be looking at the Transformers number 32. So until then, go ahead and uh, leave comments on the Facebook page. You can go to popcultureaffidavit.com for show notes. I will try to scan some of those Marvel Age things and uh, put those up for you to, to, to click on and read or skim through. Uh, you can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Take care. <laughs>